Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are a part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's revenge? Daniel-san, you look revenge that way. Start by digging to a grave. Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish just like grape. Well, hello there, guys and gals. Welcome to another week, kicking off another week of Miyagi Mornings. Today we are at episode, I believe here, 125. That could be wrong. I've made some mistakes lately with things, little things like that, like numbers and stuff, but I think that's right. Uh, we're going to talk about why gold and silver are terrible forms of money today. And I'm going to do this from a perspective that I don't think I've really heard anybody talk about. I'm not saying nobody ever did. I'm just saying I haven't heard it. And I was thinking about it today when I was out taking care of the ducks this morning and listening to a podcast of, of all things on um, actually you know, contemporary uh, monetary systems uh, and, and, and a cryptocurrency uh, advocate interviewing people that were talking about things like bond rates and interest and returns and stuff like that in the standard everyday fiat system. And this actually led me to start thinking about silver and gold, and that's what I want to talk about today. So before I explain why they're terrible money, I, I, I want to be very clear. I'm not saying you shouldn't own silver and gold. As you guys know, um, I have a very long-term sponsor on my podcast, if you listen to my podcast rather than just my videos, uh, that sell silver and gold. And, uh, and I recommend them. And about once a week, you know, maybe it'll be like three weeks in a row, and then their rotation will come up to where they don't make it a week. You hear me say, hey, you should buy silver and gold. I think they're fantastic assets. Okay? I think they're a fantastic way to hedge against inflation. I think they're a great way to have a financial reserve. I'm saying they suck as money. And I don't mean they suck a little bit as money. I mean they suck as money. They actually suck worse as money for people to use as money than fiat does. I'm not saying they don't hold their value better than fiat. I'm talking about using them as money. And this is the place where I think my perspective is unique. Unlike most of the people that talk about this subject, either as crypto advocates or precious metal advocates, I've done something that, as far as I know, most of them that talk a lot about it never have. I have sold services to people in the real world for both. Technically, I still do, but since cryptocurrency really caught on, no one pays me in silver anymore. I never really sold a lot in gold because... You know, one of gold's fundamental issues is it is so inherently valuable and so difficult and expensive to fractionalize, you can't go out and buy a $25 product with gold. It doesn't make any sense. $25 worth of gold costs a hell of a lot more than $25 to buy. The smaller the piece of gold or silver, as I've said last week, the more expensive it becomes. Now, you might say the same is true of Bitcoin, but we have solutions to that for Bitcoin, and we have other cryptocurrencies. So I'm not talking about... Gold versus Bitcoin, yeah, I'm talking about cryptocurrency versus gold or silver. Precious metals versus cryptocurrency as money. As a way to do business, precious metal sucks. This is why I say this. This is real world, and I really believe if you'll listen to this and put your biases and your preconceptions on the shelf 
and give me five minutes of being willing to be open and listen to this if you're on the other side of this, where if you're a logical person when I'm done, it'll be very difficult for you to disagree. If you, if you can do it. Most people, I think, this is almost an ideological, religious-like fervor, and you're incapable of it. But if you are, I invite you to consider the following. Back in 2009, I introduced to my podcast a service called the Member Support Brigade. For $50 a year, you could become a member, and then you were supporting me, and you got all these great discounts. And the reason that product has done so well that it funds most of my existence and has since 2009 when I launched it is, it is a logical product for people to buy. Since they're in the prepper, homesteading you know, world, the fact that they can buy you know, ammunition at a discount, seeds at a discount, plants at a discount, uh, long-term storage food at a discount, all kinds of things, you know, food and coffee and all, I mean just uh, herbal medications, etc. Like all these things that people probably are going to buy a little bit here and there of anyway over a year, If the discounts come up to more than the price of the membership, if you don't buy that, even if you don't like me, I think you hate money. Like, that just makes sense. And I have people that save three, $400 a year on a $50 membership. So it sells very well. So as soon as I put it up for sale, I have people say, can I pay it? This is before crypto, right? This is 09. Can I pay in silver? Sure. Well, i got to come up with a process for this. So I make a form that you print out. Okay, you print the form out, you fill out the form, you have to write out your name, your email, etc. So that when I set up your membership, we can send you an email and then you have access to your account. And if something's wrong, you can ask for help, etc. Now, when I sold back then, if you bought with PayPal, credit card, etc., I did absolutely no work unless you had a problem, and our system was set up so well that almost nobody, and to this day, if you sign up that way online, there's almost no problems. I do about one to two customer service emails a week, and it almost never has to do with signing up. So the sign-ups, I don't have to do shit. It's all automated. It's, I want to cancel my account, can't figure out how, or my card got declined and I need to renew. That's my customer service, 99% of the time, with people that sign up using a credit card, PayPal, etc. With Silver, they had to send me a form. Now, now I have to have someone manually enter their account information, and I have to take this Silver into my possession. They have to mail it to me. And it became very clear very quickly if I wanted to get any real amount of silver in, especially since how do you price $50 in silver, I had to offer a discount. So I'd do whatever number of ounces came up to under 50 bucks, but didn't go over, and then whatever that was was the discount at the time. And I started to get some orders. Probably 3 to 4% of my business came in in silver. And I would say for every 10 people that paid me in silver, at least two times out of 10, 20% of my orders, the silver was stolen out of the mail, up to where I had to make this elaborate explanation of how to package your silver to make it less likely to be stolen. And I want to be clear, I would get the envelope and the form, right? No money. People in the postal service stole the silver. So the only way to get that to go away was to put insurance on the shipping, which made it even more expensive for people to send me their silver. So now I'm giving a discount, I'm having orders fall through, that's two ways I'm losing money, and I have to do more customer service. That costs me resources. Those are three ways I was getting paid less money to accept silver, and that's just bad business. Along came cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency, when cryptocurrency came around, I'm like, well, I think you should get involved with this. What I think you should do is go buy some cryptocurrency, send it to a wallet, a custodial wallet, when you control 
I'm sorry, a non-custodial wallet one you control and the exchange doesn't, learn how it works. Then spend it. You're going to spend the money anyway. You're not really out any money. Go buy 200 bucks worth, and if you're, wait till you're ready to be a member. And when you're ready to be a member for 50 bucks, go do it, and you immediately have something you can spend it on. And that will teach you how to buy it, how to transfer it to completely your own possession, and how to spend it. And I thought that was a valuable thing for people, and it worked for me, and, it got, and people started doing it. And I still don't do like the majority of my business in cryptocurrency, but I do far more business today in cryptocurrency than I ever did in silver when it was at its height. So having sold with both ways, here's what I can tell you. When somebody buys with cryptocurrency, I actually do a manual entry, but I do not have to. I do that for reasons we will not get into today, but it lets me touch the customer a little bit more, and it lets me keep my transactions very, very private. And it's very quick, and it's very easy, and it's basically cutting and pasting three things and hitting send this guy an email. Right? I have no customer service problems when people join that way. My number one customer service problem with filling out a form and mailing it to me is that people can't write worth a shit, and then you can't get their email right, and then you get bounces from their email. And that's why I had to put, like, please give me your phone number so we can text you if there's a problem. Right? And that made people more apprehensive. They don't, you know, people that are using silver, gold, crypto, they want to be as private as possible. I don't care if you use a fake name, fake email, whatever. I just want you to get your membership. With cryptocurrency, not an issue. Total number of times somebody sent me a cryptocurrency transaction and somebody stole it between the time it was sent and I received it, zero. So all three of my losses, the need to provide a discount, I often do provide a discount from crypto, but I don't have to. I literally had to do it for silver. Okay. Additional customer service, non-existent, and theft and loss, non-existent. There's a fourth expense on the other side of it, the expense for the buyer, which makes them less likely to engage in the behavior because they're spending seven, eight, ten bucks, twelve bucks to ship thirty-seven dollars worth of silver. Like, and you can talk all you want about Bitcoin fees, but that's expensive transactions. And those people using crypto have other options. They can send me Litecoin. They can send me Bitcoin Cash, whatever. And if I want Bitcoin, I have ways to make that happen in the background. It don't cost me a lot. So cryptocurrency as a form of payment to me works beautifully. And I could make it as automated as dollars if I wanted to, including conversions. I don't because I have my reasons for that, but I could. I have no loss. I'm not pro providing a discount. I have no additional customer service. Okay, this is a $50 product. This is a $50 electronic product. So do you know what I did when somebody sent me two ounces of silver for a year's membership or six ounces of silver for three years? Three years of my $150 of revenue that I don't have now because their silver got stolen in the mail because there's thieves in the postal system, both contractual employees and actual employees steal shit. And, and I, get pissed, I get people pissed off at me that work for the postal service whenever I say that. I'm sorry. I've seen it too many times. And reporting it did absolutely nothing. No one ever got caught. No one ever got in trouble. That's why they kept doing it. Okay? So what did I do for that person? I entered their information and gave them their membership, and I didn't even tell them that it got stolen because it really didn't cost me anything except I didn't earn the income. I took the loss because I felt bad for my customer and because I could give them the product. What if I was selling a $150 product that I had $90 of cost into. What do I have to do now if you sent me silver? And you could tell me, well, you can make silver, gold, electronic, and all. Yeah, do it. You know, all this talk about how great silver and gold were for money, and the reality was all the people talking about it never took it as money. 
They never sold anything as metal. Not at scale, not at volume, not day-to-day business. They might have said, well, I, I did a speaking engagement, and I had them pay me in gold. Good for you. That's great. That's like my little one-off sales for silver for memberships. It's not day-to-day, over-and-over business. Those of you that think we can fix everything by going back to the gold standard or whatever, you have no idea what you're actually asking for. The reality is like this. You know, there was a time when one of the best cars you could buy was a stick-shift-driven, clutch-operated, wooden floorboard Model T Ford. It was a fine car. It was damn sure better than a horse. But I'm not going to drive a Model T today. I'm driving a freaking eight-speed automatic Challenger, you know, that's zero to 60 before the horse, the, the, the car replaced farts. Okay? Before the horse farts done, I'm at 60 miles an hour going down the road. Because that's our modern technology. Gold is literally archaic technology. People are like, it's got thousands of years of history of holding value. That's because it is ancient financial technology. And I am not saying you shouldn't use it. I'm not saying you shouldn't invest in it. I'm not saying you shouldn't hold it. I'm not one of these people that's like, I think you should do this, or I think you should do this. I'm one of these people like, I think you should, when I say diversify, I mean actually diversify. Well, you should have precious metals. I got that. You should have cryptocurrency. I got that. You should have dollars. I have that. Stocks, got those. Bonds, got that. Mutual funds, yep. ETFs, you bet. Right? Real estate, no doubt. Absolutely. That's diversification. But when you're talking about using something as money, you're talking about enabling a transaction. Cryptocurrency's weakness for transactions in the United States right now is tax law. It's not technology. It's not technology. It's tax law. That's its only weakness. And all this shit about it, like, you can't buy a scone with a Bitcoin. Yeah, you can. Ask Jack Mahler's how to do that. And there'll be more and more ways to do that. When people say, well, that's centralization. No, it's not. Strike is not centralization, and the reason it's not is nothing prevents somebody from creating another version of strike, a better version of strike, a cheaper, a faster, a new type. Nothing, nothing prevents that. Centralization is the banking system because entry into the banking system is controlled by the bankers themselves. You want to go, you want to go start up a bank tomorrow? Go ahead. Good luck. Let me know how it works out for you. You want to go stop, start a crypto mining operation? You want to build something that works on an existing blockchain to enable existing cryptocurrencies to do something? Zero prevents you other than your lack of ability, lack of knowledge, or excuse-making from doing it. This is the currency of the future. Gold and silver are valuable assets that are the currency of the past. And before you tell me I'm wrong, show me your business where you're running it on accepting silver and or gold. And show me your books. I won't tell anybody what they say. Show me that you have a valid business model enabled by silver payments. Go ahead. Anyway, hope you guys enjoyed that one. Different perspective, and I will be back tomorrow with something non-crypto related. Though, you know why I do so many cryptocurrency videos for Miyagi Mornings? They're the ones with the highest view count. They're the ones more of you watch. So if you have something you want me to talk about on Miyagi Mornings and I haven't yet, let me know. Take care, guys. Well, hello there, folks. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 126. And as you can tell by my shirt, we're going to talk about big tech censorship today. 
But we're going to do it in a way that is, oh, highly optimistic, friends and neighbors. Um, I want to start out with something. There's, it, it's not going to be today, maybe just a little bit of it, but there is a Jack rant coming. It will either be in Miyagi Mornings or more likely it'll be on a podcast on at the survivalpodcast.com where I'm about to thump some people in the head. I am sick of some of you sons of bitches in your defeatist language. I really am. I'm tired of it. And that's why I'm bringing you optimism today. But, I mean, I have gotten involved in so many other communities as guest speakers and stuff like that. I've been on uh, John Bush's uh, The Greater Reset, and so that makes me privy to, like, chats and stuff like that. I just did the Dollar Vigilante uh, Summit with Jeff Berwick. And all these communities that are anarcho, libertarian, and fighting for liberty... And my God, the defeatist language you people have. It'll never work. A bunch of freaking Eeyores. Get off your ass and get things done. Now, I will save the real ass thump, and it is coming, folks, for later. I want to go with optimism today. And optimism about something that seems very negative and very much like we're being defeated. Big tech censorship. That's why the Gulag shirt is on today, right? The combat cock from John Willis over at SOE Tactical Gear. Gulag. Right, not Google Gulag. All right. So I think people are completely misunderstanding the reality on the ground of the fact that if I go find an article written by a credible news source, not some crazy quack blog, citing a valid medical study, and I put it on Facebook, they censor it and take it down or put giant warning labels on it. Right? Or that Twitter does the same thing. Or if I mention exactly word for word the verbiage inside a study that is, you know, published on NIH on ScrewTube here, run by the Gulag, they'll take the video down. I think people are completely misinterpreting what that means. I want to give you a quote, and when you hear it, you're going to be like, it's not quite right, and Gandhi said it. You would be wrong on both things. So here it is. And if you... Um, If you doubt me, do the research for yourself. Research tends to be quite valuable. We learn things and we do research instead of just think we know what we know. The quote is, first they ignore you, then they ridicule you, then they attack you and want to burn you, and then they build monuments to you. A lot of people have attributed that to Gandhi and changed it and cleaned it up, make it a little less clunky. First they ignore you, then they mock you, then they fight you, and then you win. Right, and, and there's been lots of people who've said lots of things like that. And do you know why? Because it's true. Because it's true. So if you think about this, every single movement that was truly like a grassroots individual movement that real individual people actually made happen has followed this same curve. And it is very much what Gandhi did. And, of course, here's why people misattribute quotes, by the way. It just gives the quote more authority. If I tell you that Nicholas Klein said that, you're like, what? It was involving a garment maker's protest, I think, in New York. Like, it was so what? But it's right, right? But Gandhi's movement very much followed this. It was ignored, mocked, attacked, and then wins. And that's what's going on today. They don't silence you. They don't take down your post. You know, some of you guys, like, it's one thing when I get censored, like, with, you know, 50,000 subscribers on YouTube or, like, I've got a page on uh, Facebook with 120,000 followers. It's one thing when I get censored. These people that have millions of followers, it's another thing when they get censored. When you 
have like your mom, your dad, your uncle, your cousin, and your, your, your uncle's former roommate following you on Facebook, and you share something, and you get smacked down, and you get censored, that's a totally different reality. See, what they did is they, they ignored us, then they mocked us, you're all a bunch of tin hat crazy, no, right? And then they attacked first people like, people way bigger than me. I mean, and this is how you don't see it until it's like completely there. It's like, you know, again, very slowly and then very quickly, right? Slowly at first and then overnight. Um, so people are like, you know, it was like, you know, the Alex Joneses of the world or whatever. And okay, fine. And I, I, I was not okay fine with that. But it, I, I still didn't see how bad it really was because, well, it didn't affect me. And they went down to how many people you were reaching in their fight. And so you try to silence what you perceive as the leadership because you have no idea what you're dealing with, by the way. So just because somebody has a bunch of subscribers or reaches a bunch of people doesn't necessarily mean that they're a leader in this or that they're actually an effective soldier in this war, right? So, But you hit those, and then like it actually gets worse. Shit, what have we done? So then you go after like you know the Jack Spiercos and the Temples and stuff like that, right? And you go at like you know people that are bigger, but they're more in the satire world, like J.P. Sears. Like then you go after those people, and then like it gets worse, right? There's more people sharing more information. There's people taking all the content we produce and replicating it somewhere else that your filters haven't figured out yet. You know, because like if you embed a video on a page and don't put a bunch of text about the subject, your little Facebook smart algorithm Zuckercock doesn't work. So then it's everywhere all at once, and then you have to start going Nazi. And you have to start trying to shut everybody up. But here's the problem. You built a business model in a, in a economy that requires growth at all costs. This is, this is the trap they've sprung for themselves, big tech anyway. Government's got their own trap. We'll get to that later, right, where you should stop being afraid. Bill Gates is going to steal my chickens. If Bill Gates steals your chickens, you deserve to have your chickens stolen. Ah, let me let that go. God, I want to just I, some of you. I just want to freaking nail you in the head, Macho Man Savage, elbow in the head style, man. All right, where was I? <laughs> you know, so now what you have is this business model. Understand that the way the modern economy works. If a company makes billions of dollars, but makes a little bit money than they left made last year, and has a little bit less revenue than they had last year, they have a problem. If they do that for two consecutive years, they have a massive problem. If they do that three consecutive years, they're on the way to being out of business or bought out by somebody that can reverse the trend. This makes no sense for humanity, by the way. I'm not saying this is a good thing or this is the way things should be. Like many times, I'm talking about the way things are. If you are a publicly traded company, you must grow or you will be punished. So it's one thing when you're, you're thumping people with a few million subscribers, but all their people are like, eh, well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? So they stay. And then you start hitting the, the lower ranks of the people that are content creators like me, and then, but they're still, eh, well, what are you going to do? But when they start sharing stories with their Aunt Edna and it can't be seen, And they're like, wait a minute, I got this from Yahoo News, or I got this from The Guardian, or I got this like from, this is from freaking MSNBC, for God's sakes. This couldn't be more mainstream. This is a link to an NIH study. 
and you start censoring them, they start going, you know what? Maybe I better do something. And they start looking out at the rest of the world, and they go, holy shit, technology is evolving. There's places where I can go be free, that I can speak my mind. And they start to realize something. Well, it's always hard to move and start over, you know, even in the real world, if you have to move, it's hard. It's often the only way to grow. When you realize that all the people around you are effing zombies, and people are like, well, I'm staying at Facebook because I'm trying to wake up the masses. You're not going to wake up the masses. The masses have to wake up for themselves. You can't red pill anybody, right, if you want to use that term. People have to seek out, pick up, and swallow the red pill all by themselves. But, but you know, information helps jack it. Yes, but not when it's censored. Not when they can't see it. Not when you think you've shared it. But nobody that's following you sees it. Because that's the other way they're fighting you guys, right? They're fighting you guys another way. You, I didn't get censored. Okay, go talk to people you know IRL in real life, right? If you're too old to know what that means, IRL. And say, hey, I shared this, this, and this like last week. Did you see it? Don't be surprised when they're like, oh, no, I, I didn't know you put that. I didn't see it. It's called shadow banning. All of these Gestapo gulag tactics are not the mark of an enemy that is in command and winning the war. When you are winning a war by taking out strategic infrastructure, like if you're actually, I'm talking a physical war here, you go to war with a country and you're winning that war because you're taking out communications towers and oil pipelines and bridges and roads. And you have a bunch of foot soldiers running around in the desert. You just leave them there to starve. You don't worry about them. When you start going into hand-to-hand, bayonet-locked combat with the enemy's foot soldiers, it's because you're not winning the war. It's because you're not winning the war. And this is a war. And they're losing It's very hard to see that right now. But every single movement like this starts with a few people and a few more people and a few more people until they start to make a difference. And then when the enemy begins to attack people who are simply trying to live a peaceful life, it starts to sway and change public opinion. And we now have gone from And I don't pick on the millennials, but a generation of the weakest, weak-sauce human beings that, that society has ever churned out, except for maybe some of the generations during the Roman Empire. And at least they were a little bit tougher because the landscape they, they lived in tended that they had to be. But like the most emotionally weak, easily influenced generation on history. And that doesn't mean there's not a lot of tough-ass liberty-oriented millennials, but the majority of that generation is gone. You have two things going on right now that are interesting and kind of buck a little bit of the fourth turning. Gen X is not shutting up and going away now, are we? Are we? And we're the uncles and the great-uncles and the grandparents of that next generation. And this generation of kids that are growing up, and you're all worried, they're going to teach them critical race theory, they're going to teach them this. I want you to think back to school and anything that they, if you're Gen X especially, anything that they ideologically tried to put into your little brain, what did you do? 
you resist it. This is the mistake tyrants always make. They push too hard, and they push too fast, once they realize they have the problem. However, they always make the mistake of not realizing they have the problem. Because they have so much power, they believe for so long, that there's no way anybody can defeat them. And by the time they realize the problem they have, think of it like bees. If you have one bee sting you, you think about more like wasps. We don't die when we sting. We can sting again and again and again and again. So if you have one wasp sting you, you know, you might get stung a time or two or a time or three. But if uh, you go up under like a deck or something, and you see a little nest of wasps and the wasps have been flying around and you poke it, you could have a problem. But if you find out there's actually like a whole bunch of nests down there, and while you're swatting at the you know dozen or so wasps, you whack a big old freaking hornet's nest about this big, now you're screwed. What did I tell you about social media, folks, long time ago? We do not need to have a hive. We need to be a swarm. See those hornets? We all, we've also used ants to describe like preparedness and things like that in the liberty movement. Ants, hornets, bees, all of them. They're all like us in that they build their home wherever the hell they want. They do not ask your permission. And they largely ignore you if you leave them alone. But there's a point where if you've kicked the mound or you've poked the hive, or you've poked the comb or the nest too many times, you can't turn it off. Hell is unleashed. And the only thing you can do then is run and hide. And that's a metaphor. But it's a good one for what's going on right now. The fact that they're silencing a little old lady from Topeka, Kansas, who's sharing a story about an election audit, instead of like pointing out, like, here's why it's wrong, or here's why I think it's wrong, or here's where we disagree, or allowing that discourse to take place. I mean, anybody that posts anything like this on Facebook or Twithead or whatever it is, you know, it sh- immediately somebody shows up and tells them how stupid they are, and then they have a debate. Like, the fact that they don't even want to let the debate play out means you're losing. Like I started off with, stop being defeatist. And I know most of you that listen to me, you're not. I, I'm actually so proud. I mean, if you if you took that wrong when I was saying that, like I'm thinking, speaking to the general liberty, supposed liberty defeatist community out there, right? Like, I guess maybe I was, as much as I've always been proud of my community and my people, uh, as much as it does my heart good, whenever I do an in-real-life workshop and I have you know, 50, 60, 80 people stay at my home for a week, because I actually do that for those that don't know who I am, and I meet people, I never hear this shit. I never hear, well, I would do this, but they won't let me. And I, I think part of it is because like you know who I am, and you know if you send me an email like that, you're going to get a beating, but God help you. If you travel all the way to my backyard to give you that shit, you're going to get just, like, tattooed on the forehead, man. Like, you got to get out of that. But I think in general, like, just the way this community's been built, and it's not been built by me, it's been built by everybody in it. They're like, that's just not something we do. We don't do defeat at TSP, man. We don't do it. But as I've looked out into these other communities, and there's a lot of great things about them, don't get me wrong. 
Good Lord, the verbal vomit of defeatism. Man, when I was doing Dollar Vigilante Summit, I expected like to be like surrounded by people that believed in their own power. And I was. But about 25 to 30% of those people, I don't even know what they were doing there. They were so defeatist, you'd have thought they already lost. Do not, do not snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, folks. We're at a point now where the momentum is shifting. Sites like Float, for instance, are going to become one of the dominant players in social media. I absolutely believe that because I'm looking not at just who the people are, but the tech they're developing. And people are like, well, it's all just libertarians and anarchists. So? Facebook started all out, all it was is dudes trying to score. Every new community starts on a thing. And it is population that breeds excitement, that brings diversity. Every freaking social media site that's become successful started out very niche. Twitter was nothing but a bunch of freaking marketers trying to figure out how to make money with something that was nothing but kind of like instant messaging and kind of like email. It didn't really do shit. That's all it was. Look at it now. Look at it now. Reddit, same kind of shit. It was all tech nerds. right? MySpace was pretty much... I know it seems like a bad example, but that's just because, well, Facebook came. and But MySpace started out. It was just musics and bands. Everything that ever succeeded started out in a niche. But I want to say something. What is what is a platform going to look like when the niche that starts it are people like you and me? I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to be part of it. And uh, please follow me on these alternative platforms, especially Float. And if you're going to use defeatist language with me, just expect, you know... A Randy Macho Man Savage style elbow to the forehead. Because frankly, I think you need it. We're winning it, and they're silencing you because your voice is powerful, not because it's weak. Take care, guys. I'll be back tomorrow. Well, hi, folks. Jack Spierko here with another edition of Miyagi Mornings. We're going to talk about something we've we've never actually spoken to each other about before on Miyagi Mornings. And that is buying real estate with owner financing, and specifically buying land with owner financing. This question came in from MeWe, and the basics of the question is, what do you think about owner financing? And the justification for um, asking about owner financing is sometimes it's really hard to get financing on raw land versus if you're buying a house, uh, you know, your conventional uh, loans. In many instances, it's really not. If it is, often it means the land is overpriced, and that's something we'll get to in a second when we talk about actually doing owner financing. Or the person's expectations are such that it looks like it's harder, but it really isn't. Because if you do owner financing, I'm going to tell you, you're always going to have a large down payment, and you're always going to pay an interest rate higher than if you bought a three-bedroom, two-bath on Maple Street and financed with FHA. So part of this is it is more difficult, and and in some instances I I think it's impossible to get some of the loans that are possible on real property as a primary residence where you're basically getting government assistance with a quasi-governmental agency like Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae type of thing. 
where the government is backing part of the loan, and you can come in as little as 3% down, and it's really easy to get 30 years on a house. So our, our good friend, Mr. Bill, Mr. Bill goes walking along, Hey, I'm Mr. Bill, I want to buy a piece of property. And he, he looks at a piece of land, and he tries to find a lender, and he has an expectation of a 30-year mortgage with a 3% interest rate. Okay, so my first advice, before you even consider going to owner financing, it'll make a lot of sense why I'm going to say this in a second, you know, don't do it unless you have to, basically, is to make sure that you're doing an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. Because if you go down to a bank seeking a 5- to 10-year loan on a piece of raw land with 25% down, and you have reasonable credit, if you would qualify for a typical uh, home mortgage, they're probably going to say, yes, you're going to pay a higher interest rate and everything, but you're going to do all that and probably pay a higher interest rate with less favorable terms if you do owner financing. couple things here. Note when I use a word like probably versus a word like definitely. There are some special people in my audience that have to like, but uh, you're wrong because I do it and I don't do that. That's why I said probably. I, 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 I think that some special children really struggle with the different meanings of different words. I will also say I have never bought a property with owner financing. I have never sold a property with owner financing. I am not a real estate attorney nor even a real estate agent. I am not acting as one, and I'm giving you my opinion. People who have a problem with hearing other people's opinions should not listen to them. That is your full disclaimer. I will say now going forward for the non-special kids, um, I have bought and sold a ton of real property over time. I've just not used this mechanism of financing. And so as a seller, if I were to consider it, I can put myself into a position that most people that talk about owner financing wouldn't. I would think about what everything that I would want to stack to my advantage when it comes to financing a property, but yet I can still put your best interest first because I'm not actually doing it. So you'll usually hear glowing uh, uh, reports about how great the idea is from people that offer it. Wonder why they would do that. I'm pretty sure uh, the person that made this microphone would tell you it's the best microphone on the planet for the money as well. It's a pretty good microphone. I've used it for years. But you get my point. Like When the person who benefits from you taking the action says it's a good action, not necessarily true. But going into that mindset will help protect you. So this is what I would think if I was going to sell real property. I had a big piece of land. Maybe I'm going to break it up into 20-acre lots, and I'm going to sell and offer um, that, that property with owner financing as an option. Number one, I'm going to say to myself, self, it is most likely the case that the people coming to you to buy this land either are screwed or think they're screwed and can't get a conventional loan because if you had the option in most instances, most for the special children, you would not use owner financing because it's less straightforward, etc. I'll give it to you this way. There's one advantage. There's only one advantage to owner financing for the buyer. Almost everybody gets approved if they have the down payment. That's it. And anything else you could try to make an advantage, like it's faster or whatever, goes back to that. It all goes back to that, right? So that's, that's, that's the only advantage you really get, is it's easier to get approved. So I know that that's why you're probably coming to me. So either you're screwed or you think you're screwed. So as a shrewd businessman, I'm going to say, self, 
you need to make sure that you protect your ass in this arrangement, and you need to get a bunch of money up front. So I'm going to require a sizable down payment so that you have real skin in the game, um, but I'm also going to make sure that I have the most favorable terms to foreclose on you and take the property back as possible. And in many states like Texas, it can be really, really fast and really, really easy in this situation. And you actually would have less emergency time to rectify the problem, try to find some other money, try to find another buyer, etc. If you had a conventional loan, it would be long, a longer process for a bank to evict you than for me to evict you. And I'm going to make sure I put into the contract every advantage that I can to make sure that I have the most expeditious path for you off my property. Another important note here, what's true in Texas may not be true and probably is not true in California or Oregon or Virginia, or even Oklahoma or Florida, right? All this stuff and how the law looks at it and what the process is to get a tenant off a property differs state to state. Texas is a trust deed state. It is a good state to be an owner financer in, and it is a good state to be a landlord in. Other states are not so advantageous toward the part I'm playing right now, the guy selling you the property. I'm going to charge you the highest interest rate that I can get away with that I think you'll accept and still buy the property. Because I want to make as much money as I can. I am not going to finance the property for you for 30 years. I'm not going to do it for 20 years. I'm not going to do it for 15. I'm going to have a relatively short-term financing, and I'm probably going to do it with something that's a big gotcha for people. If they don't pay attention, it's called a balloon payment. And what that means is you, you would have maybe 60 months, and on month 60 or 61, you owe me $150,000 all at one lump sum. That's what a balloon payment is. And it is almost inevitable that somebody doing um, this type of financing is going to want that balloon payment. I basically want to make a lot more off this property than I would if you walked in and paid me cash for it, right? Because I'm taking more risk. There's also some tax strategy going on here. Let's say I have 100 lots of 20 acres apiece. If I sell them all at one time and I get the cash for them up front, it jacks up my capital gains taxes for that year. If I own or finance them and the money comes in over time, this may be another game that I'm playing. I may be looking at tax advantages so that I can pay less tax year over year over year and have a cash flow. So I may not want something disrupting that, or I may not want something disrupting my, you know, I have now worked out, especially if I'm a bigger uh, investor. I've worked out that this is how much more money these 20, 20 acre or 120 acre lots are going to make me by owner financing them because I'm seeing it this way. Either you're going to make all the payments and then you're going to make the balloon payment at the end. You're going to sell the property to somebody who's going to have to deal with the terms that transfer uh, or you're going to have to deal with the terms of transfer if there's any kind of penalties or anything. But I've kind of locked in that this lot is now worth X percent more than it would have been if you walked in with cash, and to me as a seller, if you walk in with cash, or you walk in with a conventional bank loan, it's the same. It's it's 100% the same to me. Um, it might be faster if you have cash, but when it comes down to how it affects me and how what happens after the transaction, what happens after the transaction is I have all the money and I go away. With owner financing, I have some of the money, I have a cash flow, and I have something I'm banking on. What does this mean? This means that I might not want that three years into the loan, you look at the balance due, cut me a check, and say goodbye. So I might put penalties in there for early payoff. This is the biggest 
got you to look for, right? So all of these things you need to be thinking about, and once you have a contract in hand, you decided you're going to do this, you've taken my advice, you've taken other people's advice, um, you've looked at land, you've tried to get financing conventionally, you've decided that this will work better for you for whatever reason. You need to take that contract and you need to pay a freaking real estate attorney that's familiar with the law in your state, who's a good one, not one that's five seconds out of, like, just take finish the bar. Somebody that's worked in the market for a while. And whatever they want you, it is worth from you to, to do a contract review, it's worth it. It's probably about 300 bucks. And you want them to go through it page by page and point out all the things that you might want to go back to the other party with and negotiate before you sign it. And that can save you thousands of dollars and total misery. So, yeah, it's a $300 insurance policy. Take out that insurance policy. You might also realize there's something in there you didn't see or understand and that you don't want the deal and you walk away from it. And being out $300 versus $200 or $300,000 or $50,000 or even $25,000, you are ahead. And then you will learn, and when you do that once with an attorney – You'll get a lot better at it, and the next time you need an attorney to look at something, you'll be like, I need you to look at this and this. And the next time you need, I need you to look at this. Okay? Now, here's this is a general principle of contract law. You do not, I don't care how much you think it would advantage you, you never want to draft the contract yourself if you don't have to. It is always in your best interest to have the other party Draft the contract. Y'all can talk about all the things that you want to agreement and make notes with each other. But in the end, if possible, and with real estate, it's almost inevitable they're going to do it anyway, because this is how these guys operate, they're going to draft the contract. Why would that be to your advantage? Because there's a general principle of law. And that is that if there's something in a contract, and you have no idea what this is until such time as there's a discrepancy, and you have to argue about it, and you can't work it out yourself, and you go to court. So you go to court, you're in front of a judge. And this particular piece of the contract is ambiguous. It could be interpreted one of two different ways. It will, whichever way, benefits the party that did not draft the contract. The legal principle, it is to be interpreted that way, to advantage the person that didn't draft it. That doesn't necessarily always happen, but it's supposed to. It is the legal principle upon which a judgment is to be rendered. Okay? Now, again, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm, I'm very familiar with that from two specific instances where it came down exactly that way. That, hey, we're not really sure, and this benefits you, Mr. Spierko, or this benefits them, Mr. Spierko. Like, I've been through it. I've seen it, and I'm telling you, most of the time it's going to be adhered to. It's probably not going to come up here, but I wanted to add that in, because, again, these, these types of contracts have been used for so long, most of the ambiguity has been squeezed out of them. But you always want... In any relationship, if you can, to have the other party draft the contract. Right? You have to be a very trusting party if you're going to be the one that drafts the contract and you didn't have to. And that is very seldom that I would put myself in that place. One-to-one, -one, I'm better at it than you are, and we're working together on something, sure. Large concern, I don't want to draft it if I don't have to. And if, I, if you make me draft it, I'm going to draft what I think. I'm going to hand it to a lawyer. They're going to make it a final contract. All right. All right, so... What, how would you use owner financing in a way that would make sense? Well, if you can avoid penalty for early payoff, then you have an opportunity here where we can go from a raw land loan to a conventional real estate loan 
in a fairly quick period. So it would benefit a person who knows they can get a construction loan, and what you're going to do is you're going to own or finance the property, you're going to build the house, you're going to go to a bank and say, here's an appraisal, here's how much I want for a mortgage, and it's going to be, that's going to be a much bigger number than, than what's owed on the land, and you're going to say the only outstanding debt on this piece of property is this right here and this right here, and the bank will give it to you probably with the contingency that you must pay off those debts with part of the mortgage. And now you've taken a piece of property for some reason you couldn't buy with a conventional loan or a government loan or a VA loan, and you've turned it into a property that you can finance that way. And now you've gotten into a property that otherwise you could not have gotten into. That works. But again, you have to look at, is there a penalty for uh, early payoff? Is it too big? Can I get it to go away? Right? And you also have to look about how much I'm paying for the property. I'm probably going to sell the property to you for more, and you need to be looking at how much you're paying for the property, not what the sticker price is. If the property says it's forty-five grand, but in only five years' time, you have to be completely paid out on it. You put in $70,000. To me, you paid about $60,000 for the property in real money. Because there's a cost of capital in there, but that's much higher than a standard cost of capital. So you need to figure that out for yourself as well. Uh, another way is if you are a land flipper, right, this can be an outstanding way to do business if you can avoid the penalty problem. right? So if you're the kind of person you go into, you buy a piece of raw land, and it's just shit, and you own a bulldozer and an excavator, or you can lease them you know, and you know how to operate them, you have a low-cost methodology to come in there and put in a home site and, and, and make this property ready to go where a more conventional uh, affluent buyer would be like, yes, that's the property I want, then this can work because you're only on that owner financing for short term. That's where this tends to work best overall um, is a short-term hold. About the only way I can think of it working with a long-term hold You find a piece of property, and it is really fairly priced. And the landowner simply prefers owner financing because they feel that they benefit by having a long-term cash flow. And the terms that you're getting are not very different than you would get in a conventional mortgage. That landholder, for whatever reason, is willing to be abundantly fair and give you a deal just about as good as the bank, or you feel that he has seriously, seriously undervalued his property and you're getting a smoking deal, and when you add the cost, you still feel it's a great purchase. Because one of the things that will not have to happen here is this property is not going to have to be appraised. So when you go to a bank and you go, I want to buy this piece of land and it's $50,000, they're going to have it appraised. Not the way that you appraise a property with a house on it, but they're going to be like the, the value of land in this condition, in this area, on the market is X. And they're not going to loan you more money than that. You're going to have to make up the difference with you know deposit. They're only going to loan so much against value. If the guy screwed up and he's undervalued his land, if you are doing owner financing with somebody you know and they just kind of want to like deal with it private, like those ways work out. Otherwise, it's really a short-term solution, and it's either a short-term solution by design on your end or a short-term solution by design on their end. I've never seen, now again, I don't deal in this much, 
but I have never seen an owner financing agreement longer than 10 years on raw land. That is the longest that I've ever seen. And most of them that I've seen are five years. And when I say seen, what I mean is I go on Landwatch and I see a property and it says owner financing. And a lot of times that, that listing agent or that listing seller will say, here's the owner finance terms. And inevitably, 99% of the time, it's a five-year term with a balloon payment. And that balloon payment seems a long way away when you're at you know month two and it's 60 months. But time flies when we're having fun, friends. So th those are all the things to think about. I'm not saying not to do it. I'm saying make damn sure you even have to. I, I think so many people make bad financial decisions due to assumptions. You should not assume that it is more difficult. I've known people that have gone out and bought raw land with a VA loan, even though it's supposed to be difficult or impossible to do. But they bought it with the intent to build. They had a contract in hand to build, and they basically financed the property as though the house was already there with contingencies. The house get freaking built. Like, always, you know, go down, to, like, find a local bank or credit union that does lending for this. Talk to someone and ask them, what do I need to do to qualify for this type of a loan? Don't write it off before you give it a shot. And don't just write off owner financing due to anything I said today, but damn well know what you're signing before you're signing it. And if it's your first, you know, first time in the kiddie pool, go to someone who's done it before, who understands it, and make sure that you actually understand it. There's a big difference between reading a contract and going, I understand what all this means. And a lawyer reading a contract who spent, you know, four years in school, three years in law school, a couple years working with a partner firm, finally passes his bar, and he's lived and breathed this language for that many years. Don't cheap out on 300 to 600 bucks for that contract review. All right, with that, guys, take care. I'll be back tomorrow with something totally different. Well, hey there, folks. Jack Spierko here. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 128. Today's episode is coming to you live if you're on the live stream on Odyssey or YouTube. I think. I don't really know. We shall see. I am trying for the first time today multi-streaming. I am streaming both to YouTube and Odyssey at the same time. And, of course, recording the podcast for all posterity as per usual, in an audio file so that it will go out in the recap episode that comes out on Friday mornings with the four episodes every week. Today's question, I love this question. I really do. It comes to me from, I don't remember the name of the person that asked it, but it came from the MeWe thread where I have like anything you want to hear on Miyagi Mornings posted here. And it is basically, what do you do with a homestead when you're elderly. There's a lot we can do to increase our health span and be active well into our 70s, but at the end of the day, we are all headed in the same direction, and eventually even a modest homestead is unsustainable for an older person. What's the long-term prep here? How should we look at this issue? I'm 34, by the way, but I spent a lot of time thinking about how to handle life in my later years. Now, I, I think it's great that you're thinking this way at 34. I, I really do. I, I think... This is just awesome, like that you are already in the mindset here of what do I do about this when you have 30, 40 years before you really have to have something in place, assuming nothing goes wrong, because the other side of this is 
What do you do for a homestead when you have a severe debilitating physical injury? Because that happens as well. And you can have, you can be 40 and less bodily able than somebody that's 80. So everything I'm going to say applies to having that kind of that plan. I, I think there's really two things here that we can look at. You, you want to look at what do I, as my ability to maintain things, to build things, to work on things, to run systems, as that ability wanes, what are the things that are most important to me that I maintain the ability to deliver, to do, to make happen, right? So that's absolutely one of the things we have to break down. And then the other thing is now how do we use smart design to minimize human labor because even if you hire labor in at that point, and I think that we do need to, if we build our homesteads right, We should be able to have such a good ROI on the production side that if I have to hire some young guy that needs some money to come in and work four or five hours a week to get things done, that it's worth me doing that. If, uh, that hopefully I have, you know, done a good job. I have done my uh, my due diligence and I have saved enough money that I have that ability to to work within my means and bring somebody else in to help get that done, if that makes sense. And then I think we need to start looking at some other possibilities. For instance, does it make sense right now, if you're looking at a, if you, when you use the term homestead I, and you're worried about this problem, I am not thinking that in general we're in a situation where we have, you know, your quarter acre urban homestead. Right? It, that would be very easy to just, as you age and as you get to points where there's less you want to do, you just stop doing it and you kind of put the, the place back into lawn or whatever, you know. Um, that wouldn't be that hard to maintain. When you have five acres, three acres, 20 acres, etc., we can get into some situations that are a little bit different, right? And if, if that's the situation that we're in and we're 30 or 40 and starting to think this way, Does it make sense to start doing something like building some tiny houses? And even if you're doing it through Hip Camp or Airbnb or something so that you have the ease of ejection of a problem. That's, that's the main reason to use services like that is if, um, if I rent to you personally and directly and you end up being a problem, I want you off my property, I have to go through the legal process of eviction. If you're through kind of a handshake service like Airbnb or Hip Camp or whatever and I'm like, I need you to leave. And you're like, I don't want to leave. Well, I can call up the local sheriff, and they will come grab you by the neck and throw you off my property. So leaving that option open, at least until you have somebody well vetted, is probably a good thing. But imagine that you put in you know, a couple tiny houses, and you're selective with the type of people that you look for over the years. And you find people, especially as you get older, who kind of want the homestead lifestyle, but they don't want a huge expense with it. And having someone on site that can just, again... An hour of work a day across a week in a well-designed system should keep most things going. And then I think we also just kind of need to look at, like, we need to look at our homesteads like a business. And we should be doing this anyway, even when we're young. You'll generally find that 80% of your production comes from 20% of your work. And you find that in businesses. You find that 80% of your productivity comes from 20% of your workforce. And even your rock star worker, 80% of his productivity comes from 20% of his work. 
And so you need to kind of harness that mindset and start realizing, like, what is it that I really want to produce? And you can see this in other places other than, like, Homestead is kind of a relatively small scale. But even if you look at something like farming at much larger scale, you know, Darby Simpson, who's on our expert council at the Survival Podcast, he, for years, was doing chickens, pigs, and cattle. Poultry, pork, and cattle. And the chickens and the pork require a lot more labor uh, than cattle, especially you know, yield in, in dollars at the end of a cycle. Cattle are far and away a better yielding system. And he eventually decided as he's getting older, he doesn't want to drag chicken, chicken, shack, chicken tractors every day, etc. He, he doesn't do, to my understanding, poultry at all anymore. And I don't think he does pork either. I think he's gone to doing nothing but beef, and that's made him able to make almost as much money as he was making before because you up your herd size if you do that, and then you focus on one thing and you do it really, really well. And if you think about like the necessitation of, of labor, pigs are harder to deal with, chickens are very, very manual labor across a relatively short cycle, and you got to do it again and do it again and do it again. And you know, and if you're if you're selling chickens for twenty, twenty five bucks a bird, there's a lot of work in that one bird for twenty five bucks. Look at what a full grass fed beef sells for at harvest time, right? So I'm not saying that if somebody wants to go into farming and ranching, you shouldn't do leader follower systems. I think that's ideal, but that's an example of someone looking at this and going, if I want to continue doing what I'm doing, if I want to continue making the family farm, this multi-generational farm, pay for itself, where do I get 80% of my results for 20% of my labor? It may not have been beef for everyone. You know, Texas is known as cattle country, but where I live, this is sparse pasture, and it's never going to be deep pasture through our Darth of summer, so maybe it would be that pigs would do better here. I don't know. It would depend. You go 10 miles down the road, and then it might change over that cattle would do better, etc. Or maybe right where I'm at, you would, if you were going to try to make a living off farming, you'd want to farm the shit out of chickens in the time of year most conducive to doing it and just not doing it in the depth of winter and not doing it in the, the height of summer, maybe having those four months, two on each side, off so you're not dealing with a polar, polar vortex or, you know, sweltering heat of death like we are going to deal with for the next two months. Like you have to look at the whole thing and you have to determine for yourself what it is that makes the most sense for you. And as you age, then you kind of wean certain things off. The last part of this is going to be automation. And this is why I say right now, while you're healthy and you can think and you have money and you're not in this you know kind of stuck state yet, if it can be automated... You should automate it. If it can be automated, automate it. And if it costs money, it costs once. And I think all of the automation that you put onto your homestead needs to be automation that you clearly understand how the system works and if something breaks, how to fix it. If you have to rely on somebody to come fix it for you, then you're not liberated by it. And if there's a common component of failure in a system... So this is really not automation, but it's part of automation because I run it with timers. Um, pumps. Pumps, when you run aquatic systems, every once in a while you go out and you're listening for that beautiful sound of water running and you hear the terrible sound of quiet. And that's a terrible sound because fish are going to start doing this on the surface and then they're going to die. So every system that I'm running right now, 
I've standardized on two pumps, a small one and a big one. And there's a big one and a small one sitting on a shelf. And I've set my systems up so even when I'm a 78-year-old codger and I have to go out there and swap a pump out, if as long as I can pull out a pipe and stick in a pipe and plug a cord in, I can get it done. Maybe not as quick as I did it today, but I can get it done. And I, then I mentioned timers, so a lot of these systems are on timers. The timers fail. So... You know, you know, it might be out there for two years before it fails. It's an $8 part. I have a couple of them at all times in inventory. If I have a timer problem, even if I think maybe I can jack around with it and fix it and get it working again, throw a new one in, you know, and just let it roll, and then you can play around fixing that, like thinking that way as well. So I think that you have to take a combination of effects here as you age in a homesteading environment. One, pare back the things that aren't really necessary that are most important to you as age. Two, set things up with automation. Three, have smart design to minimize labor in the first place. That's good practice anyway. Four, don't be afraid to hire help. And then the very last thing is I think you should honest to God document the process, procedure, and functionality of everything on your homestead. You should have like a homestead operator's manual. And this is something I haven't done, and it, it is a bad thing that I haven't done it. I should do this. And the problem is that I have one of those minds where You can tell me anything going on out there, and I, I can just be like, oh, go over there and pull this thing and, you know, like, I can tell you how to fix anything here. The problem is, what if I'm not here? Or what if I've brought somebody in to help me, and I don't want to spend all my time re-explaining things to them? If you have a manual, and I think you can even have kind of a, a digital manual, and some things are easier seen, so if there's like a way to swap a pump, have somebody video it and put a link in that digital manual And then you basically have, like, store that online somewhere. And then it's almost like you have an app for your homestead. And that might actually not be a bad idea either if someone were to build an app for homestead management. Not for inventory as much and things like that, but for how everything works. So when you hired someone in and they were like, oh, look, that, that gate over there is supposed to be electric. Uh, it's not working. You know, they put a tester on it or arc it with a screwdriver and the electric fence is down. Well, he, he, electric fence not working, click. Here's all the things to check before you come bother me. I think that's a good process and procedure. And it would accelerate, if you're bringing in help, labor, tenants, and tiny homes or whatever, it would accelerate the learning curve so quickly and so dramatically. And it's one of those things I've been meaning to do, and with podcasting, homesteading, et cetera, it just hasn't gotten done. So I, I hope that helps everybody um, in their thoughts. And since I am... On live stream right now, I think I'm only seeing comments coming from the folks over on YouTube. I don't think Odyssey has functionality that's feeding back to StreamYard. If anybody has any thoughts on it, throw them in right now, you guys on YouTube. And one guy says, uh, what you should do is buy Bitcoin now and hold it till your retirement, and then you'll be able to buy all the beef you want. Probably not a terrible idea. Um, so John says, does anybody else feel like a backslider when they miss a few days of Father Jack? I don't know about that. I am a reverend, Reverend Crazy Jack. So anyway, guys, uh, remember these episodes. I don't know how this live stream into Odyssey will work out. I don't know if that's going to become permanent. I don't know how any of this works yet. But I do know that the uh, Miyagi Mornings recap audio-only episode will be out tomorrow morning, syndicated in the services, and... Make sure you tune in to the Survival Podcast today if you're listening to the live stream or watching a posted video of this because it is Thursday and that means it is time for the Expert Council Q&A at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Take care, guys. 
Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap. Remember, I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. All subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series. And please remember, you can always support the Survival Podcast by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com or becoming a member of the Members Support Brigade.